Well, good morning, church. I'm so glad you decided to join us for our online service again. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, um, as soon as the air began to get even a little bit crisp in the fall, and, and us children would want to go outside and play, my mom would begin her cold weather rant. Anytime one of us kids would open the door to go outside, you could hear my mother from whatever room she was in in the house yell out, put your coat on, you're gonna catch a cold. I don't know if your mother did that, but mine did. As a matter of fact, she still does it to this day. I'm almost 50 years old, and if my mother sees me uh, outside without a jacket on and the weather is crisp, believe me, she will tell me that I will catch a cold. Um, I am sorry to say, Mom, cold weather is not the cause of seasonal colds. It's true, germs are the cause of seasonal colds. The reason we catch more colds in the wintertime is simply because we spend more time inside in close quarters with other people who have germs. It's true, you don't get a cold from cold weather. You get a cold from another person who generously shared their filthy germs with you. Scientists say most colds, most flus are spread by an infected person sneezing into their hand and then shaking your hand or touching you with their dirty, sneezy fingers. That's why so many public buildings like hospitals and nursing homes, even churches, have those little Purell sanitation stations um, at the entrance of their building. So when you come in, you can wash your hands and not spread germs because germs are contagious. Germs are the agents that transmit colds and viruses from one person to another. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because today's message in our uh, Spiritual Lessons from Coronavirus series is entitled Contagious Christianity. Like the coronavirus, Christians uh, or Christianity, if done right, is highly contagious. Bill Hybels once said, God wants us to become contagious believers who will first catch his love and then urgently and infectiously offer it to all who are willing to consider it. This is his primary plan, the one Jesus modeled powerfully to spread God's grace and truth person to person until there's an epidemic of changed lives around the world. I love that. Until there is an epidemic of changed lives. Let me ask you a question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word evangelism or evangelists? A lot of people immediately think of that slick-haired, shiny-shoed, smooth-talking televangelist. But evangelism is simply telling people that they matter to God, sharing the love of God with someone else. Most people aren't interested in committing their lives to Christ unless they observe attractive and consistent patterns of living in the Christians that they know. Joe Aldridge, author of the book Lifestyle Evangelism, said, Christians are to be good news before they share the good news. One of the greatest purposes of a Christian is to infect those around them with the love of God. Their purpose is to influence others in such a positive way that the person who watches them wants what they have. They say, man, whatever they have, I want some of that. So today I want to talk about contagious Christianity, what, what it is that makes a Christian contagious. 
Um, and in order to do that, we're going to look at Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. I think this is a beautiful passage of Scripture talking about what a Christian should be. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it useful again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a mountain, glowing in the night for all to see. Don't hide your light under a basket. Instead, put it on a stand and let it shine for all. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, but in these verses that I just read, um, where Jesus tells us that we are the salt and the light of the earth, he doesn't say anything ab um, about us telling others about Christ. He never mentions, go and tell people uh, about the love of Jesus. What he's talking about here are our actions, our behaviors. If we want to be the kind of high-impact, salt-and-light Christians that Jesus is talking about here, we have to really consider our actions, the way that we are behaving. We have to make sure that our actions are enhancing uh, the flavor of what, what we are saying. We have to start by making certain that the way that we are living is backing up the words that we're speaking. Jesus knew the importance of perception, and that's why he gave, gave each of us clear instructions on being salt and light, right? Don't just say that you're a Christian, but make it, you know, make your actions match up with what your words are saying. Jesus knew the importance of perception, and that's why he gave us such clear instructions on being salt and light. He knows that as we learn to live out these guidelines in tangible ways, people will begin to see our good deeds and praise our Father. He doesn't say they'll hear our good deeds, they'll hear about them. No, they will see our good deeds and they will praise our Father in heaven. What Jesus is getting at in these verses in Matthew chapter 5 is that the attitude and the actions of each of his followers either draws people towards Christ or repels people away from Christ. Think about that. Your actions are either drawing others towards Christ or repelling them away from Christ. Jesus was pleading with his people then and even now to live in a way that would draw people towards the Father. With that being said, I want to talk about the two kinds of Christians that are mentioned in this passage of Scripture, because there are two kinds of Christians mentioned. And ask yourself, which one am I? The first kind of Christians are the Christians who repel the lost from Christ. Salt and light can be good, but it can also be bad if there's too much, right? Too much can be re repulsive. Um, how does food taste if you have way too much salt on it? Terrible, right? And likewise, if you don't have any salt, if you have something that, that needs salt, um, it, it doesn't taste good. Uh, the same thing with light. If you have too much light, then it could be a bad thing. Think about when you're driving down uh, the highway and there's a car approaching you and they have their high beam lights on. It's blinding. It's not good. It's too much light. And again, if there's not enough light, then there's nothing to see. The same is true if there is not enough salt and light in the world. The Christian who repels the lost is the salt that lost its potency and the light that has been hidden. The Christian is not having the desired impact 
on the people around them if they've lost their saltiness or they're not shining. So let me share with you three types of Christians that repel lost people from Christ. Um, imagine um, you are a Christian in the world and there are seekers all around you. And when I see seekers, I mean people who, who are not Christians, but they're seeking, they're open. So the first type of, of Christian, uh, Christian who repels people away from Christ are those in-your-face Christians. These are the hard-sell, confrontational evangelists. They are the ones who pull up in the car next to you at a red light, and they yell out their window, do you know you're going to hell without Christ? They are downright offensive, right? Nobody wants to hear that. that that's not going to make somebody go, oh, I want to be a Christian now. They are the in-your-face Christians. Next, we have the holier-than-thou Christians, right? These are the smug Self-righteous types, I like to call them the Pharisee Christians. I know a few of these. They make it plain that you probably couldn't live up to their level of spirituality, so you might as well not even try, right? They are always better than everyone else. They have a hard time admitting any time they have a weakness or a fault or a sin in their life. You know the type, right? They are the holier-than-thou Christians. And finally, we have the cosmetic Christians. These are the Christians that only have a veneer of Christianity. Their faith is only skin deep. Um, their faith doesn't really change anything about them, right? Before they were a Christian and after they've accepted Christ, they're kind of the same and nothing has really changed. Nothing in their core value has changed. If you relate it to the coronavirus, these would be asymptomatic Christians. They may have the virus, they may be Christians, but they're not really showing the signs of it. That's scary. So their witness is flavorless. They don't bring any light into the dark world, and they are turning people away from Christ. Non-believers are not attracted to them because they don't see much of a difference between their life and what's happening in their own life, right? There's no difference between them and you. They are flavorless they are still dark. That's why God calls us to be salt and light. So let's talk about the Christians who do draw people towards Christ, who um, are contagious Christians, Christians who appropriately are flavor, a flavoring influence on those around them, who demonstrate the reality of their, their faith and are contagious Christians. They are the Christians who demonstrate what we call good works or good fruit. They are consistently uh, producing good works or good fruit in their life. And they are influencing other people towards Christ. Jesus uses this term good five times in the Sermon on the Mount. And each time he uses it to contrast those who are failing to produce fruit um, and those who are producing fruit. So let me give you three examples of these kinds of Christians who have this contagious characteristic. The first is the costly Christian. What I'm referring to are believers who live out their faith even when it costs them something, even when it demands a sacrifice. Um, to, il to illustrate and demonstrate the power of costly Christianity, I want to talk to you about um, a story that Lee Strobel shares in, in his book. 
And um, Lee Strobel, many of you know, was an atheist. And uh, he had quite a journey from atheism to Christianity. And in his book, he talks about the story of Ron Bronski. And Ronnie um, had been a member of one of the street gangs in Chicago. And a rival gang had beaten up his little brother. So Ronnie decided that he was going to get even. And one night he had gotten a pistol and he had waited for Gary, the guy who had been responsible for beating up his brother. And when Gary came out of the building with a few other gang members, Ronnie came up behind them, yelled his gang name and pulled the trigger. The, but the gun, gun just clicked. The gang members turned around and Ronnie pulled the trigger again. This time a shot was fired into the air. The members of the gang began to run off in all different directions, and Ronnie ran after in hot pursuit of Gary. He shot another shot, and this time it caught Gary in the back. And Ronnie walked up to Gary, turned him over, and putting the gun to his head, pulled the trigger once again. But this time the gun locked up again, and he dropped the gun and he ran. Ronnie knew now that he had to get out of town. He needed to run away. So he packed up his belongings, his girlfriend, and they left for per Portland, Oregon. In Portland, Ronnie got a job where several contagious Christians worked. They surrounded him and eventually infected Ronnie. Over time, Ronnie made a commitment to Christ, and he began to transform his life. He became a role model in his church and in his community but something deep inside continued to gnaw at his soul. Ronnie knew that although he had been restored in his relationship with God, he had not yet been restored to society. There was still a warrant out for his arrest for attempted murder. And although the Chicago Police Department had discontinued looking for Ronnie a long time ago, and we're probably even glad that he was out of town, um, where he couldn't hurt anybody, um, they, he knew that he needed to still turn himself in. So he kissed his wife and his children goodbye, and he took a little bit of his hard-earned money, and he hopped a train to Chicago, where he went to turn himself in. He knew that he was looking at a really good possibility of jail time for up to 20 years. And Lee Strobel, still an atheist at the time, was assigned to the criminal courts building by the Chicago Tribune. He was a journalist. And he was used to hearing all kinds of people who were um, obviously guilty trying to get out of, um, you know, paying the price for the crime, right? Exploit the system, um, trying to find different loopholes to get out of the responsibility for the crime that they had committed. And into that scene walked Ronnie. And this is what Lee said, and um, that Ronnie said to the judge. Um, Ronnie walked up to the judge and he said, I did it. I'm guilty because not only did I shoot him, I was trying to kill him. But I have become a Christian since, and now I realize that what I did was wrong, and I am truly sorry for it. Lee Strobel said, this drew me towards Christ like nothing else had ever done before. To see someone so convinced of their faith that they were willing to be faithful, even when it meant up to 20 years in prison, made a remarkable impact on my life and showed me that Ronnie's faith was for real. Today, Ron is the pastor 
of the Song of Hope Church in Portland, Oregon. Bill Hybels wrote, sacrifices impact people for a lifetime. And in a day when narcissistically looking out for number one has been elevated to an art form, almost any kind of sacrifice will cause a stir. Well, Ron certainly caused a stir. The second kind of Christian that draws a person to Christ is a compassionate Christian. When action-oriented compassion is absent, it's a telltale sign that something is spiritually amiss. Whether the problem is with the organization or the individual, uncaring Christianity does not attract seekers to its fold, right? It's not going to attract someone to its fold. But a clear, consistent demonstration of Christ-like love is the most powerful magnet that pulls people towards Christ. So let's talk about being a compassionate Christian. One of the primary reasons God calls his followers to be extraordinarily caring people is because even simple acts of mercy can open up a person's heart like nothing else can. Put another way, there's tremendous pulling power in the expression of even a single act of kindness. And God wants that power to draw people towards his son. These acts of service include just basic random acts of kindness, but they also include intentional acts of kindness. These intentional acts of kindness that serve the real needs of people. You see a need and you intentionally act out in order to meet that need. It's the cooking of a meal for a, a neighbor whose family members are ill, or watching someone's children when they don't have childcare readily available, volunteering for an organization or a nonprofit or for your church. It's including others in your plans. The list could go on and on because it's any type of service that demonstrates in a very practical way the love of God. Let's touch briefly on one more kind of contagious Christian, and that is the consistent Christian. And this is so important. Um, I'm talking about those who demonstrate integrity of faith, even when they don't know that they're being watched, right? They're the same, right? Uh, whether they're uh, in church or not in church. They're authentic about the struggles that they have in life as well. They don't try to pretend to be something they're not. They observe this high level of honesty, what we here in the shoe call being real, right? They're, they're real with one another. Do you know what a seeker needs to see in you more than a pasted-on smile or a corny religious slogan? They need to see that you're real. They need to hear you talk openly about your own struggles with issues of purity or, or um, issues of addiction. Uh, they need to watch you work out your faith without discounting the everyday realities of life. I heard about um, a non-saved or a seeker business owner who uh, went in and hired a bunch of Christians. He was going to observe them. So he hired all these Christians for his company, and then he began to watch them like a hawk. Let me read to you what he wrote about that experience. He said, you know, I was naturally drawn to God by observing these Christian workers who were thoughtful and kind and consistent. But I'll tell you what really impressed me. One day, a guy who I knew had been a fresh convert 
asked if he could see me after work. I agreed to meet him, but later in the day I started to worry because I thought this young religious zealot might be coming to try and convert me too, and I was not ready for that. I was surprised, though, when he came into my office with his head hanging low and said to me, Sir, I'll only take a few minutes of your time, but I'm here to ask for your forgiveness. Over the years I've worked for you, I've done what a lot of other employees do, like borrowing a few company products here and there, and I've taken some extra supplies, I've abused telephone privileges, and I've cheated the time clock from time to time. But I became a Christian a few months ago, and it's real, not the smoke and mirror kind of stuff. In gratitude for what Christ has done for me, and in obedience to his word, I want to make amends with you. I want to make amends with your company for the wrongs that I have done. So could we figure out a way for me to do that? If you have to fire me for what I've done, I totally understand I deserve it. Or if you have to dock my pay, dock whatever figure you think is appropriate. If you want to give me some extra work to do on my own free time, that would be okay too. I just want to make things right with God and between us. Well, they worked things out, and the business owner said that this conversation made a deeper spiritual impact on him than anything else he had ever had. It was the single most impressive demonstration of true Christianity he had ever witnessed. What was it that made this new believer so contagious? Was it a clever new gospel presentation? A witty slogan? Was it a well-rehearsed testimony? No, it was merely a genuine and humble admission of wrongdoing, along with a willingness to make it right. It was consistent Christianity. Maybe there's something you should confess at work or in your home, to your family, your neighbors. Or there could be an area of your life that you know isn't right, but you're still trying to cover it up in the hopes that nobody will find out. Maybe now God's Spirit is prompting you to go to somebody and say, because I mean business about my relationship with God, and I want to be right before God and with you, I need to apologize. Let me give you an inside scoop. People who are investigating Christianity, those seekers, they don't expect perfection from Christians. They are way too street smart for that. What they do hope to find is someone with the courage to confess their faults and make things right. They want to see humility and repentance and maybe even restitution. Recently, I saw a letter written by a relative, um, a relatively new Christian. She'd only been saved for a short period of time. And she wrote this letter to the person who had influenced her in her life. She actually lists about a dozen qualities that she found contagious in the life of this, this older Christian. And I want to read to you a passage, a portion of what she wrote to this person. So listen to these words. You know, when we met, I began to discover a new vulnerability, a warmth, and a lack of pretense that impressed me. I saw in you a thriving spirit, no signs of intentional stagnation anywhere. I could tell you were a growing person, and I liked that. I saw you had strong self-esteem, not based on the fluff of self-help books, but on something a whole lot deeper. I saw that you lived by convictions and priorities, and not just by convenience, selfish pleasures, 
and financial gain. And I had never met anyone like that before. I felt a depth of love and concern as you listened to me and didn't judge me. You tried to understand me. You sympathized and celebrated with me. You demonstrated kindness and generosity, and not just to me, but to other people as well. And you stood for something. You are willing to go against the grain of society and follow what you believe to be true, no matter what people said, no matter how much it cost you. And for those reasons and a whole lot more, I, find, I found myself really wanting, truly wanting what you had. Now that I've become a Christian, I wanted to write to you and tell you how grateful I am. I am grateful beyond words for how you lived out your Christian life right there in front of me. Basically, what she was saying was, thank you for being a contagious Christian. Reading a letter like that motivates me to live as a contagious Christian too. How about you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the love of Jesus. We thank you for the message today the, that you have spoken to us through the word of God. Lord, help us to be Christians who draw attention to you and to the richness that you bring to life. Help us to bring light into the dark places of this world. Help us to bring salt into the blandness of life. And help us to be contagious Christians as we live out our lives for you. Help us to be costly Christians, compassionate Christians, and consistent Christians as we seek to share the love of Jesus with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the peace of the Lord be with you. God bless.